I am Dr. William Davis, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. Many LDS members have argued that the Book of Mormon could not have been created by any man. They've challenged people to come up with a naturalistic explanation for the Book of Mormon. Well, it turns out that Dr. William Davis is the author of Visions in a Seer Stone, and he has found some examples of what he calls oral composition methods that Joseph likely used in, to perhaps compose the Book of Mormon. He'll reassess some of the timelines and uh, basic assumptions of the translation process. So it's going to be a very fun conversation. We'll also be, be giving away a cop, an autographed copy of Visions in the Seerstone. So if you'd like to do that, sign up to gospeltangents.com contest and you could win this autographed copy here. So it's going to be due on Friday. The entry is due on Friday and I will announce the winner in next, uh, next week's conversation. So you won't want to miss it. Check it out. Well, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I've got a person I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time and glad that uh, we finally got him on here. Can you go ahead and tell us who you are? Uh, my name is William Davis and I am the author of Visions in a Seer Stone. Go, go ahead and show us. All right. So Visions in a Seer Stone, Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon which is, I guess, what we're going to talk about today. Yes, that's, what, that's why we're here. So, so this is fantastic. So I always like to get people's educational background. Tell us where you get your bachelor's and master's and PhD and all that. Okay. Um, I bounced around a lot in my undergraduate years. Uh, I started at BYU, but then I shifted up to the BYU Extension Center. Then I went over to BYU-Hawaii. Then I came back and I went to the University of Utah, where I finally decided to get a degree. <laughs> So I'm so, a Ute. Okay, fan. so do you vote for BYU or Utah when they play each other? Utah. Oh, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Utah. I'm very Sorry. glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and then I finished up there. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And what was your major? At the time, and in film, film. studies, okay. but I was also in an actor training program. Oh. And so I went on, I pursued the acting. Um, I first went to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, and after I was there for a year, um, the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. started a new classical acting program, and they invited me to be part of the first class. Hmm. So I moved from one side of the United States to the other, and I did my degree. Um, my first master's degree was in classical acting, and then I went up to New York, where um, I started to do a little bit of acting, but um, I didn't even when I was in school, I wasn't sure that that's what I really wanted to do. It's hmm. just something I kind of fell into. So and classical, so is this like Shakespeare kind of stuff? Mostly Shakespeare, but that type of period where um, you had to learn not just acting, but acting with verse. And, and there's a lot of technical skills that come along with being able to handle uh, Shakespeare verse and also the plays that were around that time period. Um, a little later, the Jacobean plays, or earlier, and because you're dealing a lot with uh, metered language, um, like poetic forms, and so to be able to speak that, to have it make sense, but also to make it flow, there are all these things you did. So anyway, but that's where I got my master's degree. That's where I started getting interested, too, in... What was um, the name of the school? Well, it was George Washington University officially okay. in terms of who gave the degree, but all of our time was spent at the Shakespeare Theater in uh, their rehearsal halls. And, okay. And uh, so, yeah, they're one of the major regional theaters. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I studied. I got my master's there, and then up in New York, I pursued a second master's degree in digital imaging and design. Uh-huh. And... Um, that was probably a lot more useful monetarily, right? Well, uh, except, except I'm, a, I'm, I'm at that age where I didn't grow up with computers, and so I was surrounded by a lot of younger cohorts uh -huh. who grew up on it, and it was, so it was just this second language, and they were running circles around me, and so I said, this is really nice, I learned some fun things, but <laughs> this is not, I'm not going to be able to, to have the kind of career I want, and it was in the course of doing all this, I had been doing a lot of work on research. Uh, on Shakespeare and classical rhetoric, and I've been um, 
I started getting some papers published in journals, um, academic journals, about uh, the nature of Shakespeare's language and rhetoric. And so I thought, you know, I really enjoy this. So I took all of that theater background, but also the study of the text, and decided to put it together. And then I went to UCLA, where I got my doctorate in um, theater and performance studies. And, uh, and then most of my time while I was there, I was split between being in the theater program, but also um, being in the English department. And because I was taking a whole bunch of my classes over there. And I spent about half my time in the English department, half my time in the theater department. And then I, uh, and that's where I finished. And so, wow. Yeah. Wow. And so is this the result of your uh, dissertation? In part, in part. I mean, what happened with my dissertation, it was a really wide, broad view of um, oratorical culture in the early 19th century and then how um, Joseph Smith growing up, what, were, what was the environment like for oral performance at that time and then how did that relate to the text of the Book of Mormon. And so it was a really broad, wide look at all the different types of um, pathways or uh, ways that people learned about oral performance that informed the way that someone was trained in public speaking or in delivering sermons or exhortations, that sort of thing. The book then went specifically, it took that really broad um, swath of ideas and I narrowed it down to focus almost exclusively on sermon culture. So I had to leave out a lot. And, uh, and I decided I'd just go deep on the one because that seemed to be one of the most prominent Sermon culture seemed to be one of the most prominent uh, areas where what you're seeing in the text of the Book of Mormon has a lot of things that are related to sermon culture at the same time. And, and that's in terms of the mechanics of production, the way that the text is produced rather than, and I, I didn't hardly work on content at all at that time. It was just, you know, techniques besides uh, about speaking and dictating a text. And, and so know. did this relate to your Shakespeare training at all? Um, only in a broad sense. Okay. Um, it, I would say where there is a relationship and, and part of what, the, the, the one thread of interest that brought me over to looking at the Book of Mormon from Shakespeare is that Shakespeare used complex, uses complex chiasmus everywhere in his works. And you know, they can, it, as small as one to two phrases to where it expands up to where it's the shaping of entire plays and everything in between. Uh, long speeches, scenes, and whatnot. And, and so I'd been working with that, and that's some of my early publications were on Shakespeare's use of complex chiasmus, but then also in terms of how he used it in ways that he incorporated devices from classical rhetoric. Hmm. And um, so when I started looking at um, the Book of Mormon, I, a part of it was because it had that interest in chiasmus as well. And I'd, I'd been studying chiasmus before. I first heard about it when I was on my mission. And, uh, and then, so it always kind of stuck with me. And then... Where did you go? I went to New Zealand and okay. the Cook Islands. And so, um, and then after my mission, there was a short time when I helped the translation department with some translations of Cook Island Maori. Um, did you speak Maori? Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, wow. You make and, the faces and everything? <laughs> well, that's New Ze well, they, that's New Zealand Maori. That um, so I don't speak New Zealand Maori, but I understand quite a bit of it, and I can speak halting. I actually can communicate with someone better who is in Hawaiian, of all things, than than um, oh. than New Zealand Maori. Uh, especially if it's an outer island, they have a dialect that's very similar huh. to not the main one that they have in the Hawaiian dictionaries, but out on the outer islands they. Uh, things switch around letters and stuff and, and so oh, sometimes it's it's identical phraseology so wow yeah but anyway so that's where I first learned about it some of I wasn't technically an employee I was a contract person who just came in to help them with some other projects on Cook Island Maori and then um, was this for like the Book of Mormon translation or something Doctrine else? and Covenants oh really yeah 
And then, so you helped translate the Doctrine and Covenants into Maori? No, I wasn't translating. Um, what I was doing is I was kind of, uh, I was helping, there was a, the person who was doing the translator, translation was a guy named Manu Cummings. And he was an elderly gentleman in the Cook Islands. And so what happened is um, I came on to, um, he was sending in translations and then I was reviewing the translations to see, um, you know, if, if, made sense. Yeah. And it, for example, if there was something said, did he, was it translated too literally or was, or maybe uh, the translation, the sense or the meaning of it wasn't quite being captured. And, and then, so what I would do oftentimes is I would, um, uh, when I was talking to Manu, I would, uh, we call him Papa, Papa Manu Cummings, you know, and uh, what, what I would do is I'd offer about three or four different translations back to him to say, this is, this is kind of where it's going and, and I see what you were doing, but you know, the trend, they had, a, they had a guide on what you wanted to go for with translation. I'd say, this is what they're looking for. And so I'd give him some options, but that usually just giving him options would then kind of let him know, oh, this is where it's kind of going. And then he would, he would either choose something that I had offered or he would just kind of tweak it another way. And so, yeah, we worked on that for quite a while. Wow. So, and then, and then uh, that's where it was one of my supervisors there who first really talked to me about uh, what chiasmus was. Now, I'd heard about it on my mission, but I really didn't know. I actually didn't care um, <laughs> at the time. Um, but then one of my supervisors there, he... Uh, when you say your supervisors, is this at the church? At the church. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, and his name was Joe. I don't want to... Yeah. But he, he, he was really smart, really wonderful, uh, really wonderful guy. He was such a great mentor. And he, um, he essentially taught me a ton of stuff about linguistics. And I, I had actually been pursuing a minor in linguistics at the University of Utah. I never finished it because I wanted to graduate and get out. And I was just like one or two classes away from having my. But um, he took me under his wing and I learned so much more. Um, informally about linguistics and that got me really excited and interested and so it was later when I was doing this classical acting program in Washington DC and I was looking at the text when all this other information background was still present and alive and that's when I started noticing all of these patterns in Shakespeare and I said wait a minute Shakespeare was using chiasmus I thought I thought this was some ancient Hebrew thing that nobody else wrote in how come Shakespeare is speaking in chiasmus all over the place. I mean, it's almost habitual to the point where, you know, sometimes it looks really intentional because it's so precise in the complex structure of them. And other times it's just loose to the point where you think, well, maybe this was such a habitual, unconscious structuring that, you know, it would come out even when he wasn't trying to. And so but that's what where my early publications were. Well, you know, and I know that some critics are like, well, Dr. Seuss uses chiasmus. <laughs> yeah, well, he does. <laughs> I know that there... I mean, the idea is this isn't that big of a deal. We shouldn't be making that big of a deal with the Book of Mormon. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, I think people got to be really careful. And um, look, I, I understand I understand why people will say, look, we have this form of, you know, look at Alma 36, this great big form that goes over this entire, well, modern chapter um, that covers this um, conversion narrative. And, and wow, there's, we find some things on one side and some things on the other side. And um, Complex chiasmus is not the nail in the coffin that people think it is. And that's because when you go out and you look around at the way that people express themselves, particularly when they're expressing themselves through the spoken word and not just the written word, complex chiasmus comes up all over the place. And, and, and I've said this elsewhere, and I'll say it again, that there are a lot of um, people who are now thinking that there must be some sort of default mechanism in our cognitive structure and architecture that for a lot of people there's a tendency to speak in a way that is something they would kind of call a ring pattern where you start to state an idea and then 
to emphasize that idea. There's repetition of the idea. And these complex chiastic structures are emerging all over the place with people who have no idea that they're doing it. And so even you, today, even today. Oh, absolutely. And um, when you when you look at someone like, for example, I've done a lot of work with Shakespeare. When Shakespeare does one of these complex chiastic forms, it's really precise. It's really tight. So when you're going through and moving from the A levels, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, that they, they're really tight and there's not a lot of repetition in such a way that there's bleeding of one idea into another idea. When it happens, it's minor, if at all. And so they're very tight, very precise. So when you go over and you see someone who's doing something that is not um, planned out or structured, you can still have these sometimes very tight chiastic structures. But then th there's more ideas that tend to bleed in. It tends to get um, loose and not so tight anymore. And so you can start to see differences between ones that are really planned out, real carefully planned out versus ones that are not. And so if I were to compare like the Book of Mormon chiastic patterns, the large ones, the complex chiastic patterns with large scale chiastic patterns that you see people writing with, um, it's really, um, not it they don't have the kind of precision you would expect from a literary project that's been planned out it, it, it's it's closer to the types of large-scale chiastic structures that i see with people who have just been speaking through just patterns of oral presentation and um so yeah that's right i mean does that answer that question so or? let me make sure I, i'm understanding what you're saying so it sounds to me like you're saying Complex, chias complex chiasmus in the Book of Mormon is not strong evidence of ancient Hebrew origins. Okay. It's just too common. And the structures it's that... more common than the apologists would lead us to believe. Yes. Absolutely, okay. yes. And also the type of structure. But, 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 but let's do something here because one of the things... I know that when you start talking about those evidences and whatnot, People feel like it's an attack on the Book of Mormon or attack on faith. That's not, I don't go to faith questions. You know, the work that I do with academic study is I just say, look, here's the information, here's what we have. People get to decide what they, how they want to interpret it and how they want to use it um, in terms of their belief systems. But, um, so when, when I'm talking about these chiastic structures, it's not like I'm out to tear down the Book of Mormon or something. And some people respond that way or feel threatened when we talk about that. That's not what we're doing, but we have to be careful when we're doing these complex structures. So what I observe is that a lot of times when people are trying to build a structure, there's a lot of cherry picking going on, right? And so they'll, they're looking at a passage and then they'll say, okay, this little phrase here has a similar or the same phrase down here, but there might be seven or eight other types of topics or ideas that just get dismissed and overlooked and discarded. And so there, it, it's keeping the information where it's parallel and conveniently discarding other information that should be there. And so when, when that starts happening, that means that somebody is making a decision about what's included and what's not included. And when, when you have a really tight chiastic structure, you don't have that kind of ambiguity or choice to exclude it. Because it's, it, the, the text will force you into a shape when it's really tight and really done really well. And, and, and what's happening like with Alma 36, you know, there's a lot of cherry picking going on. Hmm. And, and it's, um, I think that there is definitely an overall chiastic shape, but uh, let's look at it through the viewpoint of someone who believes the Book of Mormon is real history and written by ancient prophets, okay? And so you look at the text of the Book of Mormon. Where in the Book of Mormon, like Alma 36, let me back up a little bit. So in this, we have the conversion narrative. And this is where um, Alma's talking to one of his sons, correct? 
Mm-hmm. Or am I totally missing out on it now? Well, I don't have the chapters down really good. <laughs> Let's grab it. But yeah, I... you're talking about the the sons. Is this the one with Corianton and the harlot? Is that, what you, is that the story you're yeah, talking no, about? Yeah, no, only it's the oldest son. And then uh, the reason why I'm confused is because um, Alma actually tells this story twice. And once in a condensed form and once in this longer form. So in the first one, he's talking about his conversion. And um, so he's doing it with his older son. That's Helaman. So, um, what happened? Let's just look at the scriptures. So, if okay. we say, was this intentional? Was it planned out and written? Or was this a spoken chiasm? And that's what I would argue it's a spoken chiasm. And so, it's not going to have the kind of precision you'd have with a literary chiasm. Now, when we look at the text of the Book of Mormon, does the text say that um, I, Alma, spoke to my son? Helaman, I told him my conversion narrative, and later when I recorded it, I decided not to say what word for word I told him, but I decided that I was going to take what I said to Helaman, and I'm going to change it and create this chiastic structure with it in order to record what was said. Or did he just say, this is what I said to my son, and he tried to faithfully reproduce what he said to his son, right? So if he's trying to faithfully reproduce what he said to his son, then that does not involve a process of trying to construct it in a literary form. He's just going to try to repeat what he said to Helaman. And so if he's brought up and trained in this kind of chiastic world, but if he did not sit down and write out what he was going to say to Helaman before or after, but just spoke it and just told him what essentially was his conversion narrative, then you might expect to get this general chiastic shape, but not a precise chiastic structure, not one with a lot of precision. So that's what I would argue, is that when you see this chiastic shape in the Book of Mormon... And that's in which chapter? Alma 36. Alma 36, okay. That what we're getting here is the the actual shape and structure and development of the text reflects someone who has spoken a chiasm without preparing or writing it or trying to figure out how it's all going to work and so and the text actually supports that there's no evidence in the text that alma went back and restructured what he said to helaman and in fact the way it's presented in the text is that what we have in alma 36 is what alma actually was trying to reproduce what he said to his son Okay. And am I just kind of going off on there? Well, I'm trying to understand. So the, so you're saying that what's in the Book of Mormon is evidence of an oral presentation rather than a written presentation because right. the written presentation would be tighter with the chiasm. Much whereas tighter. The oral presentation, it's more of a loose. Yeah. Okay. So the kind of structure that we see in Alma 36 is the kind of structure that most similarly, that, that looks most similar to oral uh performances where someone kind of naturally falls into this kind of repetitive pattern of uh, a complex chiastic pattern. It's, it's, it, it's much more uh, characteristic of that kind of presentation than, than someone who uh, plotted it out carefully. And, and, and I joke about it, but I'll say it again because it, it, even though I'm joking, it's actually, I'm dead serious. And that is if, if this were an intentional literary chiasm that Alma wrote, then he was skipping school and skipping chiasmus class because <laughs> there, are, there are huge blunders he's making if, if he were intentionally trying to create this as, as an intentional chiasm. Okay. There, well, so there's, there's two questions that I, I see coming up. Um, the one is... Um, I don't know, you probably don't, I, I interviewed Dr. Thomas Wayment from BYU. Yeah. He's a New Testament scholar. And he was of the impression, and so tell me if you agree or disagree, that he, like the Apostle Paul would use chiasms. Mm-hmm. And he said, you don't need, while there is a very technical structure, when you're speaking extemporaneously, you, those rules aren't as strict. Would that be true in Paul's case as well? Yeah, and then, but the only problem is we can't always tell by looking at a text 
because um, sometimes if we see a chiasm and it looks really tight and really, you know, that's not necessarily evidence that it was written. Um, but otherwise, because there are some people who do these incredibly precise uh, chiastic structures. Just orally? Off the cuff, orally. Really? I mean, some really precise ones. Um, I, one person I've done a lot of work on was Andrew Jackson Davis, the prophet of Poughkeepsie, who was, um, he was born uh, later than Joseph Smith, when Joseph Smith um, oh, was translating the Book of Mormon, or, or uh, no, he was born later. Andrew Jackson Davis performed a text, uh, The Principles of Nature, and he did it when he said he was kind of in a trance state, although we don't know exactly what that trance was, because he described several different layers of trance. And um, <clears throat> so he just went off. His process was he put on a blindfold. So instead of putting his head in a hat and using a seer stone, he put a blindfold on and went into this kind of trance state. He equated that trance state, though, to the same thing that went on with seer stones. Because one time someone brought him a seer stone and said, can you make this work? And, and so he, he kind of started looking at it. And eventually he started making it work the same way he did his own process. With the blindfold. With the blindfold. But he just preferred to have a blindfold instead of hmm. using this. But anyway, so he did this vast work, The Principles of Nature, which is r roughly about 320,000 words. And in that, he has chiasms of all sizes that start to crop up. And, and it's really clear that it's not conscious. It's really clear that what he's doing is he's just trying to express certain ideas and then he winds up uh, following indeed certain patterns of repetition. But some of them are really big, really long, and extremely precise in certain sections of them hmm. in such a way that I would have never thought myself, even after looking them for all these years, I would have never thought it was possible for someone to do an oral presentation hmm. where it's not planned out, it's not written, he just spoke it off. So, so with those long tangent caveats, uh, caveats, they're We're all about um, tangents here. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to what Thomas Wayman said, I would say that yeah, when when someone is trying to write one out intentionally, it tends to be more precise than someone who is speaking them and creating them, and and it can be conscious or unconscious. People will still fall into these patterns, and it's really widespread. It's it, it's across all kinds of cultures it's across all kinds of time periods and so um i would just i would just caution people that that if you're going to say that you know evidence for the book of mormon being ancient is chiasmus in it it's not really the um okay it's it, 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 it it's not a slam dunk it, it, it's getting more like an air ball you know, it's not the kind of evidence that people think it is. <laughs> We're going from slam dunk to airball. Wow. Slam dunk to... Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, I know people will have a problem with that, but the point is, it's, I'm not really interested in duking it out with people and right. debating and arguing, but I will say that, you know, people need to be more cautious in when the way they represent some of this material. Um, I know that it's just like this wonderful piece of evidence for a lot of people, but it, it, it doesn't have the strong evidentiary value and support that I think people really wish it had. Hmm. Okay. So the other question that leads to, uh, at least in my mind, is, you know, there's several times uh, in the book that it says, well, we're not very good writers in the Book of Mormon, and if you could hear what we were saying, this would really make a lot better sense, and it would be more. It would cause you to convert better. That we're, you know, you know, we're not. We're mighty in speaking, but not in writing. Yeah. And so, because I think your your thesis is that the Book of Mormon is evidence of an oral mm -hmm. tradition rather than a written tradition. Is that mm -hmm. is that right? That yeah. Yeah, but, and, but more specifically, I'd say it, it, it's the, the text of the Book of Mormon, the words of the Book of Mormon, the way that all these stories are expressed, the process that brought those words into being more reflects an oral dictation or oral composition than it does a written composition. And is that what would explain why when the 116 pages were lost, 
Joseph's using an oral thing, and so he's not going to be a perfect translator of those 116 pages, which is why he didn't retranslate them? I would say that, yeah. I would say, no, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because what happens when, when you're dealing with the, with the type of technique that I'm talking about here. So say we're, we're Joseph Smith, right? And we're translating. And, um, and this is where we're going to talk about the two different camps of translation. Now, some people say that translation, they believe that Joseph Smith was doing nothing more than reading the words off the seer stone, or else having some kind of vision that the seer stone helped induce, where he got everything word for word. The other side of the coin that you find in LDS theorizing is that Joseph Smith participated in the process, so that through visions of seeing past events through using the seer stone and whatever the process was that he was um, experiencing the stories of the Book of Mormon that his own language was where the source of the words were as he tried to express what he was experiencing. This is known as loose translation and the former was tight translation. Yeah, right? so that's tight versus loose translation. And, and so when, when we're talking about the translation of Book of Mormon, and coming back to the 116 pages, and what the text really shows again and again is that there's this process of oral production of words in an effort to articulate whatever he's experiencing through vision or the seer stone or both. And so when it comes, so what's happening then is if you don't have this word-for-word -word perfect script, so you've done the 116 pages, and then they're gone, there's a very good chance that Joseph Smith could have gone back and then done all of those, uh, all that translation again, but more than likely a lot of the words that he used to express those ideas would have been different. And so the concern was that someone would have this text and come along and say, well, it might be the same story, but it's told in two different ways, and so, you know, this is fraudulent. And, 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 and so, so there was this really casts a lot of doubt on the tight translation because well, if he got word for word, he should have gotten it word for word again, right? Yeah, and that, that's what the concern was at that time. Um, because that was one form of to way to, to say, oh, there's variance. And if it's word for word tight, then, you know, and, and if someone were really trying to do that, they could have tried to find some other way to alter it yet further again. Um, so I think ultimately, you know, scrapping 116 pages, not trying to do them again, turned out to be just the best way to try to circumvent all the potential problems that might have come up. Okay. But yeah, so... That, so you're definitely in the loose translation camp. Absolutely. Camp. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where most people are. I think Royal Skousen's in the tight. Um, there, are, there are some other people that are in the tight camp, but uh, from my experience, it seems like most people are in the loose translation category. Would you agree with that? Well, my impression is for that 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 is the case. There, it does seem to me that there are more people who are kind of gravitating to that position. But then again, that's just the circle of people that I interact with and read about. So I don't know what's going on in the, the wider, you know, population yeah. and population. My, my experience is most people are going with loose. And the reason why is because um, if you're going to go with tight translation, how do you explain horses and steel and, you know, all, wheat and all the so-called anachronisms? Those are more easily explained with, oh, well, Joseph was using his own vocabulary, not that the word steel was on the, on the rock. Yeah. I, and I, I think, and, and for me, it's not so much those anachronisms or getting around the anachronisms that, that's the real issue. That's not a big deal um, to you? No, I, I because, but in turn now I, and again, I'm talking from the viewpoint of someone who would be, you know, believing in the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. as as an actual historical record. Then it seems to me that loose translation, like what you just described, that Joseph Smith is seeing things and he's trying to articulate what he's seeing within his own experience, his own vocabulary, his own frameworks of reference. That 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 goes a long way to explain a lot of the anachronisms that are in the text. And it just, it, I, I, um, I'm a little surprised that people are actually going so gung-ho about this tight translation that Joseph Smith wasn't even participating. 
because it seems to contradict not only the text, the textual evidence itself, um, but even the descriptions of how the process took place from someone actually doing it as opposed to someone who was an outside observer. And then plus from an apologist's point of view, it's so much easier to explain to have, to have some of those difficulties. It just, it just seems that the tight control creates more problems than, than the benefits. Well, and that's why I think most people are going to lose. I mean, there, there are people like Royal Scouser that are just, that's the hill they're going to die on. But I think no. Royal's in the minority in that case. Well, and, and I don't want to peg, everybody can change, you know, and evolve. And, and I don't know, I mean, it, it could be that, and I, th I, I could be wrong, but I thought I read somewhere that, that Royal was keeping the door open in some of his earlier stuff. And I, I can't speak for him now. I don't know what he thinks today. Um, but I know that, you know, there's... I'm trying to get Royal on, but he's, I know he's really busy, so maybe, uh -huh. maybe he can... But Royal's explain. done a ton of work, and it's really uh, fascinating. And, and the type of work that he's done just takes... It's just an enormous amount of time. Oh, I know. And, and, and uh, I've done similar type of work on other texts, and it is just immensely beyond otherworldly difficult. And, and plus, you're dealing with things that are so you know, mundane and in some ways just kind of, unless you're really into textual studies, you and just he is. Like, oh my and, gosh. but I, I love it too. So I'm, I, I love reading it just to see, wow, you know, this is so much fun. Uh -huh. And I kind of nerd out over <laughs> his work and stuff. So, but, but yeah, the, the only, the, the only uh, concerns I have though, is sometimes that when, it, when you have something on the, on, on the page, when you're looking at the original manuscript and you see some, types of um, corrections or things and, and the interpretation of what that could be is I think sometimes um, I think Royal Skousen has been uh, trying really hard to uh, reconcile the textual evidence with the historical observations of people you know describing right. words on this because story. isn't it John or Peter Whitmer I always get them mixed up where, wasn't he the source of the seer stone? And do you know? Oh, you mean about seeing something? Seeing, seeing then, the words in the rock? You know, I'm not sure who the first person was to say that. Um, and I want to see David Whitmer, but I, yeah, I'm probably. not. probably. I get, I get all the Whitmer brothers mixed up. Yeah. But, but uh, th there were several people. I'm not sure who the first one was. And then, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't always taken into account. Like, say, you know, if you have five different people who are describing the same process, were, were all of the, were these independent statements or was someone influenced by something someone else said and they mm -hmm. just kind of lean that direction? I mean, some of the work on um, uh, what people are saying hasn't been um, as fully critically examined as I think it probably should be. And, and then even, in the end, none of them actually saw what was on the seer stone when Joseph Smith was doing what he was doing. And so, you know, it's hearsay evidence. And no matter how badly we want it to be evidence, it's still hearsay evidence. And it, it, the only one who really knows is Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith never said what was happening. Well, you know, and I, I know Jonathan Neville, I'm trying not to misuse his words but he almost referred to it as a parlor trick like hey he just did this one time but he used the urine thummim most of the time and, and it was more of a loose translation but there was one time I mean, can you comment on that I don't know if you heard that conversation well, I had with yeah no I don't I, I missed that part so I'm not okay. sure yeah Jonathan was like well I think David Whitmer was the only one who, who talked about the seer stone but Joseph didn't really use the seer stone most of the time, and, and so huh. Jonathan Neville is more of the opinion that it was more, he's a, he's a loose translation guy as well, uh -huh. and that he was influenced by people like Jonathan Edwards and Adam Clark mm -hmm. and, and people like that um, with, with the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I can, I mean, I, I would say that when you're talking about someone who's a translator, and that's what Joseph Smith said he was. He was a translator. If we take Joseph Smith at his word, then what that means is when he is trying to translate something, he is going to be using material 
that he was um, exposed to in his own lifetime in an effort to articulate what is in the text. And so if he had come across the writings of Jonathan Edwards, if he'd heard that, if he'd been in a sermon and someone had quoted Jonathan Edwards, um, that information could potentially find its way uh, into the translation of the Book of Mormon. So yeah, that's how a loose translation could operate. But you know what, because I'm, I'm always playing devil's advocate, you know, you could say the same thing about the type control because then all you'd have to say is, well, where did this translation on the surface of the stone come from? You know, is it more than just an object or the, you know, like Google Translate? Or was there, as some people have proposed, like God or his angels were doing the translation then feeding it into the stone? And if that's the case, why couldn't the angels say, oh, these 19th century audience might understand this better if we use one of Jonathan's words. So we're going to use steel or horses or So we'll whatever. use steel or horses and inject that in, and Joseph Smith just read the words off. Right. Well, you that's know? interesting. So that's a possibility. I would say that um, there's a point, though, where you have to start doing some real serious mental gymnastics to keep making the type control work. Um, because then when you start lurking at, you know, when you start seeing mistakes in the King James Version from the 1769 version of the King James Version, all of a sudden they start popping up in the Book of Mormon, then you have to say, well, this tells us something about the angels and God and the angels and their process of translation. They're willing to include a mistake. They're willing to do something that's imperfect. And then you have to start saying, well, what's the nature of God? Is the nature of God trickery or producing mistakes? See, because ultimately what people aren't doing is they're not, they're not following some of those issues to their logical end. And what the logical end of tight control is that you have a God who's a trickster God. Or you have a God that is doing something that's imperfect. Right? And, um, and Which I'm, is why the Book of Mormon has all these anachronisms and we can't find any archaeological evidence because God's a trickster God. Are we going to attribute all of that to God? Ooh, we're starting to get on shaky doctrinal ground. Right. You know? And I, so I, I just think that um, we just have to be cautious because sometimes I think that we compartmentalize theories and we don't realize the, the way that we try to get an answer for this particular question is, is going to ripple out yeah. and, and it's going to... Mm, but, you know, but that's not, I don't do theology, I don't do doctrine, people are going to have to work that out themselves. But I'm just kind of, you know, sending out a little caution here. Be careful when something's compartmentalized. Okay. I'll give you another one. Okay. <laughs> this is going way off of wherever I thought we were going to talk about. One more thing and then we'll get back to the book. <laughs> one thing people do where they compartmentalize something that seems to be an answer where we can say, ah, we can reconcile what's going on. It's like, you know, the Egyptian papyri and the Book of Abraham. Right. All right. And so we have the catalyst theory. Right. So now it's really clear from Joseph's point of view that he was translating these texts. All right. In his mind, he was looking at the text and saying, okay. Looking at the Egyptian. Looking at the Egyptian. And then, and then receive, so that was a catalyst in which he received this inspiration. And so he thought he was translating the book of Abraham when in fact he was doing something else. He was receiving um, a revelation. But if you step back and you say, okay, here's Joseph Smith. Here's the prophet. He thought this was happening when in fact... It was something else. Let's give one application of this. Let's say the Book of Mormon. You know, what if we applied the same exact translation to the Book of Mormon? And I'm not saying people should do this or not, but I'm just showing how when you have an answer in one place and then you move it to another thing, how it suddenly starts to become a problem. Joseph Smith thought he was translating an ancient record when in fact he was writing an inspired allegory. And well, there are some people who reconcile it that way. Yeah, and some people do. But see, you see how it suddenly destabilizes? The, when, you, when people compartmentalize an explanation for one area, 
and then you say, okay, well, we can extract some of the principles of the nature of, of like what Joseph Smith thought he was doing, what he was doing with his prophetic calling. When you extract those principles and then project them back onto another similar situation, all of a sudden it's, it's going to cause a problem. So I think, anyway, that's just another caution that when we come up with an explanation for one situation, we should be aware of how that might be applied to other situations and be equally valid. And if they're equally valid, then what does that say, for example, about the text of the Book of Mormon? You know, maybe. Well, I know a lot of people lose their testimony because of the Book of Abraham, because mm -hmm. the, the, it doesn't match. And therefore, they do apply it to the Book of Mormon. And then they're, and they're, I, I heard a woman one time, she's like, the Book of Mormon literally fell apart in my hands. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so certainly that does happen with some people. But other people are fine with that explanation, mm -hmm. you know, that it's yeah. non-literal. Um, and I guess, because you, I know in, the, in your book you claim to be agnostic on that issue of, of uh, Book of Mormon historicity. Well, um, what, what I did is I'm not going to take a position in the book. Okay. Yeah. Because... Um, because I, you know, I think if I come out and I say, well, this is what I think, uh, in the opening of a book, then you're you're kind of turn pushing the audience yeah. to to think a certain way, and wh and what I prefer to do is just kind of lay out all the evidence, and let people draw their own conclusions. Right. I don't want their conclusion to be you know, manipulated in any way by me trying to say, look, go this way, go this way, or go that way. You know, because pe people will take evidence. And like you're saying, they're, they're one person might look at the, the information around the Book of Abraham and completely lose their testimony, where someone else with the same exact evidence might strengthen their testimony. Right. And it's all about perception. It's all about mm -hmm. people's personal background and experience and what they bring to the table and the way they interpret. So. Well, and it gets into this idea, and it's why people like Karen Muelstein try so hard to say, well, there's a missing scroll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Because clearly what we have doesn't match, and so Joseph must have been translating something else. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, that, uh, I guess, puts, and I don't want to put Carrie's, or words into Carrie's, mouth, but if I would assume that Kerry would be more of a tight translation guy, although I haven't heard him talk about that, so maybe I might be mistaken there. Yeah. But in my mind, well, if we have this missing scroll um, and we don't have the, the plates and therefore we've got a legit translation, according to Kerry, um, the same thing. I, I would assume he's probably more of a tight translation guy, but I haven't asked him, so mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know for sure, and and the book of Abraham is not not your focus, not not what I focus on. But right. but what I have looked at, I would say that when when people try to say, oh, there's a missing scroll out there that's being missed, um, no, the the, the no. Well, I, the, yeah, the textual I, evidence does not support that. I think most scholars would agree with you, and that Carrie is kind of the the minority opinion. Yeah, I, I haven't read a whole bunch of his work. I mean, yeah. I've I've se I've seen some stuff, and I know, and I know uh, there's the big Brian Howgood thing that he kind of more supports Dan Vogel now than Carrie Mulestein, for example. Yeah, and you know what? Um, I wouldn't for Brian. I would say that it's not that he supports Dan Vogel more. It's just that as he's been talking to people about the evidence, he he now sees that the evidence more strongly. Um, favors the idea that Joseph Smith uh, was trying to translate from texts that we still have and that we can, of course, verify whether or not it was or was not. So, so it's not so much, I know when I've read people even kind of attack Brian, uh, it seems like they're saying, oh, he's gone from our camp to their camp and their yeah, camp to our camp. Exactly. And, I, and I'm saying, you guys, if we're doing scholarship, it's not, this is all about tribalism. This is right. all about ad hominem attacks on Brian because he's not on our team anymore. Right. And, and um, you know, I think... Just uh, go where the evidence leads. Go where the evidence leads. And there's a lot of really good evidence coming out. Uh, 
and, and I'm always terrible with names, but there is a, there, there's some excellent um, essays on this very topic in producing ancient scripture. I know. I've been trying to get Brian on. And, and so Brian's, but also there's, there's another scholar who just read, wrote a fantastic essay in the book, Matthew Gray. And uh, he goes in and where he tracks the, um, against the historical record of Joseph Smith and when he started uh, taking lessons in Hebrew from yes, Joshua Satius. That that's a good one. And, and then he's, he's showing how the, in the course of the translation, also the book of Abraham, all of a sudden when he starts taking lessons in Hebrew, all of a sudden we start seeing this increase in the use of Hebrew terms. And he's able to track that in such a historical way that um, he can actually start showing that when certain aspects of the Book of Mormon had to have been translated. And, um, and the most likely scenario given what the evidence we have. And, and, and it's just phenomenal research. And, um, and I, I, I had a chance to write a review for producing ancient scripture. And one of the things that I said at the very end of that is to say, you know, new things will come up. New information is always coming to the forefront. And we have to that kind of tribalism, that kind of polemic where, you know, it seems that scoring points and attacking becomes more important than trying to find out the most accurate possible information about the past. That seems to get sacrificed in favor of winning, you know? And, and, um, and that's one of the reasons why I steer clear as much as can from, from those debates. Yeah, me too. Um, because, and it, it's hard, mm -hmm. because like with this book, I, there, there have been a lot of situations where people have uh, not understood what I wrote, or, and then in their critiques of my work have misrepresented what I've said. And I don't think it's intentional. I think, you know, in most cases they just didn't understand mm -hmm. what I was saying or didn't understand the evidence. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. William Davis. Remember, we're giving away a free copy of his book, so sign up to gospeltangents.com slash contest by Friday, and uh, you'll enter to win this book right here. So sign up. Now, by the way, I also wanted to just mention in our next conversation, we're going to reevaluate the timeline for translation of the Book of Mormon and uh, talk about laying down heads. And how long was he doing that for? You know, and that's and that's when and so what I'm what I'm proposing in the book is when you go back and you look at the history of from the moment in 1823 in September when Joseph Smith, you know, told the family, you know, this angel appeared to me with these plates and uh, told me about these plates and said that there's this history of ancient Americans um, and that eventually I'm going to be translating them. That that's the point when we know that Joseph Smith was aware of these ancient people and that their stories. And then when you look at what Moroni said to him, even in you know, the accounts where it's really brief, apparently the angel Moroni gave him this overall arc of the story that there was a righteous nation where they came from, they went wicked and they fell apart and they died. So you, know, you have this kind of general outline about the story. And this is as early as 1823, 1823. So Joseph knew what was in the Book of Mormon in 1823. In 1823, yeah. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.